Welcome to episode three, the power of effective screening and assessment for youth at risk of CSAC. This is the third episode of the podcast series, Raising Voices, where we are committed to advocating for this vulnerable population. This podcast is brought to you by the Association of Children's Residential and Community Services. My name is Gina Peksoboleski, and I'm Vice President of Permanency Services at Sycamores. We're a large nonprofit organization in Los Angeles where we provide a continuum of prevention and treatment services for youth and families. I oversee our campus residential and foster care services. I'm also a licensed marriage and family therapist um, with a background in program development, working with victims of trauma and abuse including commercial sexual exploitation. I'm also on the board of directors for the ACRC um, and provide a variety of training and webinars on this topic. I'm Nicole, I'm a clinical psychologist and I've had the pleasure of working with our kids in the system, most of which has been in higher levels of care such as residential. And just doing work with our kids in the system, it's hard not to come into contact with kids who have been trafficked. And about seven years ago now, I stepped away from doing more direct service and have been able to do more training and consultation on both trauma as well as the issue of human trafficking. So excited to be here. Thank you both. We'll jump right into it. The first question, why is screening and assessment so important? You know, it's so important. Um, it's critical that we find out who's at risk for CSEC um, and who might be a victim so that we can provide the necessary services and interventions as soon as possible. So youth have different needs um, and individualized screening and assessment is key um, and it triggers the individual treatment planning progress. So we likely need to screen and assess regularly as the initial information and answers that we get um, may not be accurate or they may change over time, particularly um, as exposure to environmental influences and events change. Youth may not be aware of what's happening to them. Um, they may also protect their exploiters and may not disclose until they develop a trusting relationship with their treatment providers. Um, it's super important to build trust um, and increase awareness um, on their own before they're able to really open up and, and provide information. And to add on to what Gina is saying, I think as we do work around trauma survivors, really, it becomes not only important to be able to screen for that client we're working with, what they've been through, not only in terms of sex trafficking, but also labor trafficking as well, and to see what are the needs of the not only the youth and the family, as we think about working and supporting the family as a whole through a generational lens and how at times a family circumstances can also play into the kid being exploited. Great, thank you. The next question, what is the end goal for effective screening and assessment? You know, it's interesting because there really is no end per se. It's just an ongoing evolution, but screening is something typically that, that you may do at intake or admission um, while assessment is ongoing, which starts at intake. So both screening and assessment um, include interview and integrated informational tools or mechanisms. So it's critical to complete an ongoing assessment um, over time and regularly because events occur rapidly 
um, in the lives of our, our vulnerable youth. The risks increase and wane based on what's happening for the youth and who or what they're exposed to. So it's important not to lose sight of youth needs that will change over time. And youth who reside in residential care are exposed to behaviors and influenced by others um, in a way that some of our youth living in family homes may not be exposed to um, that cause ongoing risk. As I think about the end goal for screening as well as assessment, I think it goes back to what Gina mentioned earlier, that as we're able to identify those needs of the youth and adding in the family even, it helps us better serve them, both in terms of um, the amount of trauma they've been experiencing, as well as really thinking about how are we adapting our programming and our services to them and their family from a cultural lens and whatnot. And so I think, you know, really just that angle is being able to provide high quality trauma informed culturally competent services where we are able to see see the effects of those seed of those seeds that we are sowing. So important. Thank you. And can you tell us at what point is screening and assessment initiated? So screening um, should be completed when a youth admits into any mental health program, outpatient or residential. Um, screening should be administered for both male and females. It may feel counterintuitive or invasive. I know I felt that way as have um, other clinicians whom I've spoken to um, or other assessors, but it's very much warranted when working with at-risk youth, especially the most vulnerable, such as those who reside in child welfare and juvenile justice uh, care settings or who receive services through those domains. So these youth, many of them residing in out-of-home care face unique risk factors and pressures. And as well as we think not only about the importance of screening our boys and our girls, also important that we're screening our non-binary youth as well as our transgender youth and recognizing that our LGBTQ youth are at heightened risk of exploitation. And, you know, I would also add that as we think about initiating screening, not only kind of upon admission as Gina spoke of, but also thinking about if a kid returns from a runaway um, in recognizing our youth who run away many times are not leaving with their bags packed and all of these supplies and money to really to kind of survive. And so just recognizing that many of our kids who run away are at heightened risk of both sex and as well as labor trafficking. Thank you. Are there certain issues that should be highlighted? Well, we touched on some of those issues um, already, which again, you know, evolve and change over time. But, you know, based on the screening and assessment, you can determine next steps for, for intervention. So one thing I want to mention, um, it can't be said enough, is it's really critical to assess a youth's readiness to change based on a stages of change model. Um, I know there have recently been more awareness around that model and how critical it is to understand that. Um, the interventions will differ greatly based on that information. So, for example, a youth who's in, say, a contemplative stage would require a different set of interventions than a youth in preparation or action phase. You may find yourself um, using harm reduction interventions um, and being able to determine what those are based on um, what screening and assessment results you gain. 
as well as we might not only be able to assess what stage they're in and keeping in mind that there could be many behaviors at play. So folks may be at different stages with each respective behavior, but also being able to screen for protective factors as well. And so, you know, thinking about does that youth have a support system? Um, does, is the youth, you know, actively involved in their community, et cetera? So I think screening not only helps us gauge what are some of those risk factors, which we know our system involved youth carry many of, but also thinking about are there some protective factors and some of those strengths that we could also make sure we're anchoring in as we're creating wellness plans and whatnot. That's a great point. And being able to, to determine a level of youth's resiliency, um, which can be mobilized for um, implementation of interventions as well. Really good information. Yeah, thank you both. Are there any recommended instruments or tools for screening and assessment? You know, there's many and um, they're often jurisdiction dependent. Um, so early on when the treatment community saw the need um, or when we as an agency organization um, saw the need, we developed a 10 question screener that um, we use at intake. Um, you know, and we we know that youth coming in, there's no trust, there's no relationship, are probably going to answer in the negative you know, on those 10 questions because they don't know you. And, and oftentimes they may not even know what's happening. They've normalized it or they're just really lack of an awareness. Um, but we ask those questions anyway um, at admission just because it's the responsible thing to do. Um, and then we currently use um, the see it, which is um, otherwise known as the commercial sexual exploitation identification tool. And West Coast Children's Clinic developed that. They're in Oakland, California. Um, and it's used widely on the West Coast, and I believe they're also working on a version for male youth, if not completed already. So there's also multiple rapid screening tools available throughout the country. Um, Polaris offers the comprehensive human trafficking tool, and uh, Shared Hope offers the Intervene tool, which is part of a comprehensive package. Um, we have actually have a, a screening and assessment matrix on the ACRC website, um, that can give you a list if you want to learn more. And I think Gina covered it for that one. Awesome. Thank you. Next question. Are there mandates for screening and assessments in some jurisdictions? That's a good question. Um, and I wish they were in every um, jurisdiction, every state and county. So many states require um, CSEC screening and assessment um, to be part to be included in their contractor requirements um, in some way. So I know California requires that assessment and screening for CSEC um, is included in the initial mental health screening um, and assessment, which is a multiple page document that touches on, um, you know, the general assessment areas, background, um, culture, um, exposure to trauma, um, that kind of thing. And then there's a part in there that speaks specifically to CSEC. Um, that's more generally um, done, at least in counties in California. Uh, many providers choose to use actual instruments, which we do, um, which gives you additional information that definitely needs to be touched on. Thank you. Nicole, did you want to add anything? Nope, Gina covered that one. Great. Are there current gaps, needs, or calls to action regarding screening and assessment? 
You know, there's an ongoing call to action for this very vulnerable population, particularly as, as we learn more. Um, you know, we currently have a need for a screener assessment tool specifically for male youth. Um, in the last couple of years, there's been a heightened awareness and, and more information has been made available, um, but we need to do more. Um, I think we need to um, develop a screening and assessment for the LGBTQ community. As Nicole touched on earlier, there's definitely unique needs that screening as an assessment needs to touch on. Um, so requirements in all states and all jurisdictions for those very important um, groups, that would be ideal so we can have a greater chance of detection and appropriate response. The other thing I would add would be as we look at data that does exist in terms of who is being identified as trafficking victims across the board, both in terms of sex as well as labor and recognizing that many of our youth are trafficked in both domains. Um, we see disproportionate numbers of youth of color who are trafficked. And so also I think one of those gaps would be really looking at how are we better understanding the cultural needs of the clients and families we aim to serve. Thank you. Are there any key risk issues residential providers should be aware of as they move forward in developing a screening and assessment protocol? It's a good question. And it's, I always respond to that with expect the unexpected and look for the unexpected. Um, so what we're hearing more now, and, and, and this has always been around, but I think we're realizing it more now um, as we've become uh, more adept at the issues in general is that youth um, may be exploited without ever leaving the walls of a residential treatment center. Cell phones are a big risk area. Um, lots of things happen by way of a cell phone. Um, so ex exploitation these days may not be presented in a manner uh, that, that we expect. So some youth are selling, for, this is just an example, some youth are selling nude photos or videos online and receiving money from adult buyers over cash apps. Um, exploitation could present as more passive. Um, it, it may not involve direct sexual contact. Um, and this goes often goes undetected um, because cell phones are normalized, they're developmentally appropriate. Many jurisdictions um, furnish cell phones for their youth um, and they want these youth to, to have very normal developmental processes while you know placed in residential care, which I think we're all a proponent of. Um, but the risks have to be managed in a very uh, specific way. We're used to seeing kids run away um, and that triggered a screening and assessment process. Um, we would look for, you know, more material goods. We would look for uh, potentially um, evidence of being physically abused. Um, things like that would trigger a process. That's what we were familiar with looking for. Um, and now things are, are more passive um, and they're definitely um, harder to detect. Um, so I think screening and assessment really needs to speak to that as we move forward. Also, I would add, as we think about some of the uniqueness of residential care, one of the things we know is that peer recruitment is a common form of entry into exploitation. Um, many times a peer may not maliciously be trying to harm their peer by trying to, by trying to get them into exploitation. 
And so I think one of those one of those areas to be aware of and to be mindful of is also thinking about how are we screening for peer recruitment, because we know that does happen in residential. And the other thing is, as Gina talked about, you know, our youth who run away. Also really thinking about how are we incorporating some screening questions about trafficking recruitment into those runaway debriefings. Um, as mentioned earlier, our youth who run away, especially if they're gone for big chunks of time, how are they really surviving? And we know that individuals who are wanting to exploit our youth are particularly keen at recognizing youth in need. And so we know that the large majority of them who do run away are approached with an offer that's too good to be true. And so I think it's important for providers to really be thinking about how are we expanding screening simply beyond a client coming into our program and we're doing it at intake. Thank you. And the last question for today, what are the next steps for residential providers in developing screening and assessment protocols? You know, I think the most important um, thing to mention is really training and awareness, you know, talking to other providers, um, work with your contracted mental health agency, um, start having those conversations, collect information. Um, don't be afraid to have those conversations and to ask those very important questions. I would also expand on the training aspect. Um, what I have seen is that that basic awareness is key. Many times though, when we do start to identify youth who are at either high risk of being trafficked or who are trafficked, it can start to feel overwhelming when we identify this highly traumatized population within our organization and we feel ill-equipped to work with them. So I think that training also goes beyond that basic awareness to really thinking about what do we do now? And so I think it's important for providers to not only continue to learn about exploitation, to learn about the stages of change, harm reduction, continuing to learn about trauma and trauma-informed care, as well as as we think about cultural competency, as, as we recognize that many of our youth who are trafficked are youth of color. So critical. Thanks for mentioning that. Yeah, thank you both. If you have any other um, thoughts to add before we close up today? No, we, you know, we're both very passionate about this topic. Um, in addition to just treating very vulnerable youth, particularly around the experience of trauma, um, but that, you know, we continue to have a need to, to gain more information um, and just build programming for youth in general. Um, and we invite you to contact us. There's our contact information is available on the website as well. Um, we invite you to reach out and we're more than happy to um, meet with you and answer any questions that you might have. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. For more information and to learn more, go to togetherthevoice.org. That's togetherthevoice.org.